Hello, Spookies. Welcome back to the Rick or Treat Horror Show. Nope, that's not the name of the podcast. the Rick or Treat Horrorcast, hosted by yours coolie, Ricky J. Duarte. We are returning for another episode of our Evil Queen's Villain Profiling series, and today our guest host is an actor and a singer and actually a, a published author as well. Please welcome to the podcast, Edward Miski. Hello. Hi, everyone. Edward, I'm so happy to have you here. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. It's my day off. I just baked some bread. I rearranged my apartment a little bit. I'm cleaning up a bit and uh, (laughs) taking some time to come talk to you about villains. You're so domestic. It's my, I get like one day off a week. It's my no screen Sunday, which I'm breaking for you today. But uh, it's like my day to like put the phone down and like do all the other things that kind of like calm me down and make me feel like a person. I feel you. Well, I'm grateful that you would take the time to look at your screen to talk to me. And I know our listeners are also very happy and excited for it, too. Edward and I know one another. We're both working actors, like working professionals. And I feel like after a certain amount of time, everyone in New York who is a theatrical professional just knows each other. Yeah, right? it's a big, big cesspool of people who just know each other and like, I know. and run into each other all the time. Like that's, I think that's such a funny thing about New York that people are like, oh, it's so big. But like even this morning, like walking on my morning walk with my coffee, I ran into someone I did a show with years ago. Like apparently they live near me now. <laughs> it's crazy. I live right off of Ninth Avenue. So of course it's the game. Oh my God, that's yeah. That's the dance belt. It's just... <laughs> I haven't heard it called that before, but I love it. Oh, there's so many nicknames. There's Tyro. There's the dance belt. Uh, I used to call Ninth Avenue Vietnam because it was like always under construction. And it's like, why are we still doing this? Oh, my God. <laughs> You're not wrong. All those added bike lanes. Jesus oh my Christ. God. It took I them mean, years. I know. Well, I mean, I've lived here for 18 years and I cannot remember a single time when Ninth Avenue was not under construction in some way. Ever. That's true. There's always one, like at least one little stretch of it that's got holes and drills and all yeah. kinds of. And it, it always feels like the same four blocks, like give or take a block. It's so strange. Yeah. What yeah. are they doing? What are they doing down there? God, I don't know. They're trying to. I don't. I think it's a money making scheme somehow. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's like it's a front for something. It's a drug front. Oh God. Well, that would make sense in Hell's Kitchen. Uh, well, Edward, Ooh. tell our listeners. Uh, uh, tell me about your week. Was was this week a trick or a treat for you? Uh, you know, it's been a trick and a treat. This whole last couple of months has been a trick or a treat. Um, I'm, I'm like in a new position at work and it's kind of repositioned itself uh, since I got back from Europe. And I'm kind of all in on that, uh, which has been a really big like brain stretch and skill stretch for me, um, which I needed. I think it was time to like learn new things, you know, otherwise we'd turn to Jello. Um, but it was also a treat because I've been like doing the podcast circuit and been, you know, I've been in touch with my publisher and my publicist about like stuff going on with this book. Uh, so that was kind of a nice lift me up in a week where I'm like, you're dumb. You need to learn more. You're stupid. <laughs> it sounds very eventful. It's it's balance. You know, I'm a Libra. There's balance. There's the good or the bad, you know. I didn't know you're a Libra too. When's your birthday? October 7th. Oh, I'm the third. Oh, my God. I have, like, a really small pool of friends that are all Libras. Yeah. We're the best people. We're good good people. What can I say? We're Uh, we're not just good. We're the best. We're the best people. Okay. All right. That sounds... (laughs) (laughs) We'll go with it. Uh, My week has been... um, 
I guess a trick and a treat too, you know, I'm changing jobs. The job I currently work at is closing down in a week or so. Uh, it's a restaurant, but I do have another job at a new restaurant working with our mutual friend, Whitney, friend of the pod, actually. She's been on the podcast. Oh, is she, uh, are you going down to Lower East where she's at? I am. Yeah, I'm very excited. I've started training. So I've got two jobs going at once right now, but that'll all be over in a couple of weeks. And I'm ex- this will be my third time working with Whitney, which I think is hilarious. Oh, that's so um, funny. Yeah. Uh, so that's going on. It's just a lot, but it's a treat because I've got most of my Christmas shopping done and I wrapped all my Christmas presents last night. So I usually wait until two days before Christmas. And this year I have been shopping all year. I've had things on like wish lists. And then when they go on sale, like after Labor Day, then uh, I buy it then and just keep it in a little box in the corner of my room. And oh my god, I'm I, so I'm so impressed. I like don't do that at all. Like I'm first of all terrible at Christmas shopping for one, uh, but for two, I also wait until like two days before because then I get anxious about it and I'm like, oh wait, but this person could use, and then I end up overspending and overbuying and it's just a whole mess. So I, I'm trying to reel it in. <laughs> no, everyone this year has, I've adhered to a strict budget. Um, it's like a sliding scale of, of the monetary value of each of the people that I'm buying for. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Well, so I'm happy to have you on this podcast. I have one more question before uh, we start moving forward. Uh, I know you are maybe not the world's biggest horror movie fan, but I do ask all of my first time guests, what is, if you're not a fan, I I like to call it your horror root, like what got you started in it. But if you're not a big fan, how about I ask you this? What is the first horror movie you remember seeing ever? Truth be told, I used to really be into horror movies. Um, when I was like an early teenager, um, like The Haunting was out, House on a Haunted Hill was out, um, and then The Ring came out, and I think The Ring ruined it for me. That put that put feelings in me that I was like, no, 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 no. Um, and I thought that I would like it because growing up, um, both my parents worked, so I spent a lot of time with my grandparents, and my grandmother used to not make me, but she would let me watch Hitchcock. And so, like, growing up, it was, like, The Birds and Rear Window and Vertigo and, like, all of those, like, brain psychological thrillers. So, for me, like, that was a horror movie. And, like, House on Haunted Hill was kind of the same. Um, The Haunting was kind of the same. Like, they were a little bloodier, but they were were definitely, like, psychological thrillers in a sense. So, going to The Ring, I was like, oh, this is going to be a psychological thriller. And it was not. It was just absolutely terrifying. And it it threw me off of them. It threw me off of them. Something about that movie, it was very scary when it came out. Yeah. My, my mom was very afraid of that movie, and movies didn't really scare her. It just really hit her for some reason. I have not visited it in years, and I have to wonder if it is still as scary in a world where we no longer have VHS tapes, and uh, Naomi Watts is not as popular as she once was. <laughs> well, I mean, there's there's something to that for sure. I mean, but also maybe that adds a layer of creepiness to it because of the nostalgia point. And like, like, I mean, I still have VHS player, like tapes at my parents' place. And it's kind of like that. Ooh, like out of the corner of my eye, like seven days. Right. Right. (laughs) The only VHS tapes I have are novelties, like on the, on my little shelf up here, I've got like Rocky horror picture show and the original Frankenstein on VHS. And they're just like on display with like, horror movie figures it's uh it's just for decoration (laughs) purely decoration i don't know i don't think i have any vhs's in my apartment i don't know that's a good that's a good question because also like i was really into it like the original with tim curry and i don't remember i think i was like 14 or 15 the first time i saw it with my friend mary who is definitely like a spooky gal um but i don't really remember what my feelings about it were I just know I just know definitively that the ring broke me of horror films. Yeah, I get that. I wonder if the ring if it were made today and it were like a streaming video that kills you 7 days later, do you think it would be as scary or do you think like the act of this like secret video you pass around instead of just send to somebody makes it a little scarier? I think it makes it a little scarier cuz like with streaming, I think that pushes it into a level a like a level of camp that would actually kind of make it funny because then it's like, well, then just don't watch it. You know? Right. But but like with the VHS, it's like, 
it's like, oh, what is this? I got this thing. Like, let me put this in and see what the hell is on here. I feel or like when like, Two Girls One Cup became a thing, that was ah, like ah. that was like the streaming <laughs> version of The Ring. <laughs> oh God, I have thankfully never seen it. I have heard. Oh really? I have heard. You're so it. lucky. I gotta I've tell you, it it took something from me. Like my, the friend who sh- <laughs> the friend who showed it to me, I I never forgave her for it. I would like, never see it again. No, it was just, um, and apparently I didn't realize it's like part of an entire film. Like there's an entire movie of this. It's not just this video. Anyway, no. you know what? we are not here to talk about Two Girls, One Cup. Uh, <laughs> we are here to talk about a Disney villain. But also, while, while I have you, I want to take a minute. I want to go ahead and talk about your book, uh, Cancer, Musical Theater and Other Chronic Illnesses. Edward, tell us all about this. Sure. Um, so this book is like celebrating my 10 year anniversary of not having cancer and being alive, being alive. And um, congratulations. I knew you would sing on this podcast. I mean, yeah, <laughs> it's, re- it's, it's good reason to sing. Please continue. Absolutely. Thank you. So um, I had originally written it in 2016 and self-published in 2017 and kind of didn't really do much with it. And then, um, you know, I just kind of got like this be in my bonnet over the summer about how like this is my 10 year like cancer free anniversary like that's a big deal and I should stop trying to negate it and write it off so I hired a publisher I hired a publicist and I like did it for real and like the book is on Barnes and Noble it's on Amazon Indigo Booktopia Apple Books like it's everywhere um which is great and it's in my room I'm holding it right now it's in your room <laughs> It's in my room too. Look. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's the copy of my publishers I made. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it's basically like the the conversation is the point of me writing the book was that I wanted to talk about being a survivor, not a patient. Um, I do go through the patient journey, but the real emphasis on the book was like talking about the shit that they don't tell you when you are going into treatment like first of all i mean just the logistics of it all i wasn't told that i was going to have a port put in for like chemo to be pumped into my body that was Mm. like surprise surgery the day that i got there um there's like a commentary on the medical industry which is a mess and then just like all of the brain stuff that your head does when you're out you know like I refer to it as being like a professional patient. You're like 24-7 with doctors. You have a schedule and a structure. And then once you don't have that anymore, you're just kind of like this flopping, like, you know, fish out of water. Like, okay, well, I don't have a life anymore, so what do I do? And it's really really like this navigating all of that. And of course, naturally, I do it under the lens of musical theater. So each chapter is a musical, and the characters that you meet are characters from that musical. And then as you kind of go on, they journey with you, even if you're in a different musical. So at the end, you have this big kind of like big fish hodgepodge of characters from stories that are just standing around like, musical musicals. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I very much wrote it from a Rob Ashford lens, but um, and with the intention of always wanted wanting to turn it into a different medium, so that's kind of the next step. Is I'm I'm writing a pilot for a musical episodic show uh, that I'm producing with my friend Sarah, and that is kind of where I've always wanted the book to go. That's wonderful. I'm really That's, excited about it. <laughs> well, and the format of of integrating musicals is very clever because it takes, you know, it's cause for celebration, but it's also very heavy subject matter. And so it makes it um, approachable. And uh, for nerds, musical theater nerds like me, it's, you know, a very enjoyable read. I guess I must have met you shortly after you had... Um, yeah. You had gone through all of this. So it's yeah. interest it's interesting uh reading this and just seeing the perspective of where you were in your life at that time. You know? Yeah. It was a weird um, it, it was a weird place. But also like the the idea of using musicals, like yes, accessible, like you said, for sure. Um, but it was also kind of like the experience of cancer is so ridiculous mm. and so out of this world that the really only way that I would have been able to write about it and do it justice was to kind of like staple gun it to a musical and be like, this is what this period of time felt like. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I, 
highly recommend this read. I really do. I think it's uh, very well written. And I mean, you're a man of many talents and writing is one of them. Thank so, you. Yeah, thank you. And please, my God, keep me posted on this uh, musical episodic series because that sounds terrific. Is that going to be a nightmare with like getting rights for music? Uh, no, it original, original music. We're, it's going to be original parodied whatnot like for example the working title right now for the pilot is little shop of cancer so like all of the music in that will be will hearken to that show but it won't actually be from the show it'll just be that's great in in the style of john mulaney gets away with that every time he's on uh, snl as a host so i mean honestly every time he opens his mouth he gets away with it You're not wrong. You're not wrong at all. Yeah. Parody laws are are on our side. Thank God. Excellent. I love that. Love it. Love it. Uh, Well, uh, everyone, please, as Edward mentioned, his book is available at Barnes and Noble and online and in stores and my bedroom. Uh (laughs) Hey, hey. Hey. (laughs) Private reading. Uh, Uh, so come and uh, please check it out. It really is an excellent read, and I, I highly endorse it. Thank you. Um, Edward, what do you say we get into our villain of the day? Let's get into it. So our villain today, in honor of the Christmas season, is, of course, Oogie Boogie, from Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. Uh, Edward, when did you first see this movie? Ooh. Um, when I was... I remember the previews on TV as a kid. And it creeped me out. And I think it's actually mm. one of the reasons why I uh, like didn't gravitate towards horror films in the first place. Because I remember the scene where the parents come downstairs and the, like, the kid pulls the head out of the box and the parents are like ah why did santa bring you honey yeah exactly yeah so so as a kid i remember that and being so scared of that that i never wanted to see it and i don't think i saw it until i was maybe 12 or 13 Mm -hmm. um and completely fell in love with it like the score danny elfman is brilliant and like the music is just so excellent and it it myths me to this day why there has not been a staged version of this. I know that there have been attempts, uh, but like a big commercialized like a la Beetlejuice version of this on stage somewhere. Like, please, for the Absolutely. love of God. Make it a limited engagement on Broadway from like September to December, right? Yeah. Give it like a four month run. It would be perfect. It is such a theatrical film. Oh my God. It's perfect. I, like, and I know that I'm going to get a side eye for this and just off the top of my head, I can't think of someone else right now, but like limited engagement, Hugh Jackman as Jack Skellington. Like I'm okay with that. Fine. I'm not okay with that, but I would go see it. I would see it on curiosity. Like I did the music man, you know, (laughs) which I ended up liking. I ended up very much enjoying the music man. Yeah. Uh, But Hugh Jackman would certainly, you know who, Ken Page would totally come back to play Oogie Boogie again. I wouldn't. I would die. Uh, like I would. I, I would spend everything I have to see that. He still voices Oogie Boogie. Uh, in we'll get to who Ken Page is in just a minute, but he still voices him in the parks and on like video games and stuff, uh, oh, funny. which I think well, is I mean, so cool. Icon, icon indeed. Uh, you know, a lot of people think that this film uh, was directed by Tim Burton, but it wasn't. He was the producer and it's based on his story, but it was actually directed by Henry Selleck. And to my understanding and everything I've heard, Tim was actually like very absent while they were filming this movie. Like he gave them the story and he gave them kind of like what the characters need to look like. And then he just like left them alone for most of the time while they were animating this. Um, And the director, to my understanding, was not happy about it. I mean, I wouldn't be either. No. (laughs) No, but I got to say, and here's my thing about Tim Burton. He's very talented most of the time. But sometimes, more recently in his work, I feel like he's a lot of style over substance, and the style has slipped since he started, like, focusing so much on CGI, right? Like in Alice in Wonderland, or it's just, like, really, like, too much CGI. It doesn't look as engaging as his practical sets like Sleepy Hollow or Edward Scissorhands, right? Yeah. Those are 
really well, like immersive worlds. I mean, not to go down a rabbit hole, but have you been watching Wednesday on Netflix? You know, I have. I um, I don't love it. Oh. Uh, Jenna Ortega is Jenna Ortega is flawless. She yeah. is perfect in it. But a TV show about uh, supernatural teenagers at a supernatural high school where there's been a murder, like I've seen it before a million times on the CW. I feel like it's like a less interesting version of The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Um, And I wanted Catherine Zeta-Jones to be amazing as Morticia. And she just didn't like land it for me. And Luis Guzman is like perfect for Gomez but like his dialogue is bad, so his performance comes off as bad. I, I don't know. Well, it didn't see, do I'm, it for me. I'm going to disagree with you. I think it's charming. I love it. <laughs> yeah, everyone does. So it's very popular. I love yeah. her dance scene. Her dance scene is instantly iconic. Yeah, I mean, and I'm 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 a Catherine Zeta Jones stan. So like, me too. You know, I like. I'm all about her. I mean, just even even from an aesthetic point of view, like she nails it. Like she gives you that like exaggerated hourglass look and like uh, uh, Gomez kind of threw me because I was like, oh, Gomez is supposed to be like this kind of sexy, charming, you know, whatever. But it totally works. And there's very there's something very magnetic about that dude that like really kind of pulls you in for the original comic strips that the original comic strips by Charles Adams. He was nothing like Raul Julia. Like he was short and fat, like short and portly. Um, no, I mean, so I mean, that's why traditionally, Louis, like in in other versions of it that he's been cast, he's kind of been yeah, like yeah, yeah. a sex icon. Yeah, I you know I I did like Catherine's. Um, she kind of just speaks just above a whisper. She's always misty eyed. Like I get the impression that she's like always at a funeral. You know, I I think maybe I just didn't love the material she was given, and I don't love her makeup. <laughs> I'm or really la- really picky her. about this. <laughs> that's okay. Or um, I'm really picky about this. I think, honestly, Thing was maybe the best part of the show, and that's a problem when the most interesting character is just... Is a robot hand. An, an appendage. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> but enough of that. Enough of Wednesday. Thing. I'm sorry. I, I knew it was going to derail, but here we are. No, no, no. It's fine. So as we mentioned before, Oogie Boogie is voiced by Ken Page, who is an iconic Broadway star. He's most known for being uh, Old Deuteronomy in Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cats, the musical. But how do you address a cat? So first your memory I'll jog and say a cat is not a dog. So I recently had a callback for the tour of Cats as Old Deuteronomy, and I psyched myself out, and I was like, "I'm not Ken Page. Oh, I God. can't do this." <laughs> and then I get into the I get into the the green the holding room, you know, and I I'm clearly not supposed to be there, right? Like we all know who should be cast as Old Deuteronomy, and it's not me. And I completely psyched myself out and gave one of the worst auditions of my entire life, and that is my old Deuteronomy story. But so Ken Page uh, cast in this excellent role. He based his performance on the Cowardly Lion from The Wizard of Oz. If I were king of the forest, not queen, not duke, not prince. And Mercedes, oh my God, what's her name? The woman who voiced Reagan in The Exorcist. Um, Mercedes McKendrick, I think is her name. And the sound of iniquity be powerless to harm her. Your mother sucks cocks and hell, So not, not Linda Blair who played Reagan, but the woman who voiced her like the demon voice. That's where he got his inspiration for his vocal performance. Oh, funny. Um, well, I mean, and I think also it's inspired by Cab Calloway as well. Um, a lot of Cab Calloway in- influence as well. <laughs> is undeniable once you know that just the way that he yeah. moves and the way that he like slides up and down on his notes <laughs> yeah well and i think it's also worth noting that even though he's most known for deuteronomy like he actually was never like he never received any accolades for it at all like his big award is a drama desk for guys and dolls right 
Yeah. Like, it, um, okay. But he, and it's just so funny because he is that iconic old dude, you know? Yeah. And the iconic Oogie, he does, as I mentioned, still make appearances as Oogie Boogie. He really loves this role. Also notable that he is an out and proud gay man, um, which right, is pretty which groovy kind of, as well. Which I didn't know until I was like kind of reading up a little bit more about him yesterday. But like in my in my head while I was going through like what we were going to talk about, like Oogie Boogie is the queer character of this film. Like, and to me, always has been. He kind of is like that curmudgeon old gay that lives on the hill that, like, everyone talks about but no one ever sees. <laughs> oh, my God. Am I Oogie Boogie? <laughs> well, but that, that was my identifier when I was a teenager because I was like, I'm totally Oogie Boogie. Like, I'm not. I'm not it's like the in-the-closet story kind of, you know? Mm, interesting. And, and you know what? As we get a little bit into his history, like the lore of him, that might make a little bit more sense. Let's hold on to that theory and let's keep applying it throughout the episode. Yeah, let's do it. Because I, I like it. I like it a lot. Uh, he does, as I mentioned, still make appearances in the parks. Uh, he at one time had, uh, it was called Oogie Boogie's Fun House, I believe, at uh, Disney World. And it's no longer a show. It was around Halloween time. It was not specifically not for children. They had sword swallowers and fire eaters, and it was a little bit more thrilling than a typical Disney show. And it did not last very long at all, uh, but it was hosted by him. And uh, now he is the main villain at Halloween time. So they have the Sanderson sisters Hocus Pocus Castle show uh, at the at the Halloween parties. And oh he God, is the main so villain. It's uh, uh, villains spectacular. And so Winifred is hobnobbing with every single villain as they come out. You got Hades and the evil queen and Maleficent. And she's like, hey, girl. And then Oogie comes out and she like hates him. Watch the video because it's absolutely hilarious. She's like afraid of him and she doesn't like him. And it's just completely random and out of nowhere. But he is kind of like the head villain in that show. The woman who they cast to play Winifred... Oh, damn it. She does a very, she's a famous Bette Midler impersonator. She does a lot of drag shows and stuff out on Fire Island. Why can't I think of her name? I have no idea. I feel like you would know her. Jennifer something. Well, anyway, she's incredible. She's, it's like watching Bette Midler 40 years ago. Um, (laughs) (laughs) What did you think of Hocus Pocus 2? I didn't see it. Oh my God. I know. And I love the first one. I think that's part of the reasons reason why I'm not diving into the second one because I, it's, okay. it's such a, it's such a like sacred place in my little, in my little like coming of age gay heart that like watching the second one, I think I'm afraid that it'll ruin the first one. Okay. Actually. So Hocus Pocus came out in the summer of 1993. And the reason that it was released in the summer and not October was because the nightmare before Christmas was also coming out that year and they didn't want Hocus Pocus to compete with it. And they did not have any faith in Hocus Pocus as a success. So they pushed it forward to summer and they released nightmare before Christmas in October instead. Well, and I'm curious to get to the part where we talk numbers too, because like I would almost want to like cross analyze, cross analyze, uh, the box office with Nightmare with Hocus Pocus because to me Nightmare is a bigger success but that might also just be my perspective because of like what I was watching growing up and as a kid. Well neither of the films were big successes at first. Um, Nightmare was but not with everybody. So Nightmare was made on a budget of $24 million and it raked in the box office $91.5 million, which can be considered a success. Yeah. <laughs> Let's be honest. I mean, they made their money back and then some. So, like, that's they sure did. You know, I was not allowed to see this movie when it came out. There, I've said this on the podcast before. I lived in kind of a weirdly religious home where, like, some years we would celebrate Halloween and some years we wouldn't. And some years we would have to go to church on Halloween and they would play Christmas music in the church and we had to dress as Bible characters. Like, Edward, I was a shepherd one year. I was a shepherd for Halloween one year. One year it was cute, though. I was David and my dad was Goliath. That was like a cute height difference thing. But anyway, so well, for years, I, wa- I wasn't allowed to watch this movie because Halloween was evil and Christmas should be about Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it was uh, a, a number of years. I might have been... I might have been in high school the first time I actually saw this movie all the way through. Yeah, because I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't far behind, I I wasn't far behind you. I wasn't far behind yeah. you. I mean, I, I didn't see it until middle school. So, yeah, you know, I got so I was obsessed with it when it first came out. I know that. And then 
as it became like, you know, it was like too popular, you know, and it was like, it became a certain kind of person was wearing Jack Skellington shirts and Jack Skellington hats. And it was like, I don't want to be that person. Uh, it was like when, so hot topic used to be cool. Hot topic used to be punk rock and it used to be really edgy. And I really blame nightmare before Christmas. Right. For because turning then hot it topic into became nightmare before Christmas. <laughs> the nightmare before Christmas store. And I now know, they well, sell I mean, hello listen, kitty and pop vinyls and it's lame. I mean, listen, I'm, I'm fully guilty of being that person. I, I had like the Jack Skellington and Sally like snow globe. I had all of the nightmare before Christmas shit as a kid and a teenager. And you know, I, that was kind of my, that was, I mean, maybe a little sooner than that, but that was basically my introduction and indoctrination to hot topic. I think I just felt like I was too cool for the movie for a while. And now I'm back to loving it again. You know, I rewatch it every year. I watched it last night. For me, this is a Christmas movie. For some, it's a Halloween movie. For some, it's Thanksgiving. For some, it's Christmas. This is a Christmas movie for me. October, I watch all kinds of Halloween movies that are bloody and scary and gory. By the time Christmas gets here, I need a little spook in my life again. So <laughs> get, your, get your get your Jack Skellington fix. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, no, so I get that. Christmas I mean, movie for me. like, I don't know if I've ever considered this to be a Halloween movie ever. I mean, like, I get why it is. And I get why it could be, but I think it just in my, now that you're talking about it, like, I think my brain has just always been like, oh, that's a Christmas movie, but it's like, it's totally not. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's kind like, of it, it straddles the line. Like we said, give it a Broadway run from September to December and it can be both. <laughs> I mean, really, it's brilliant. Like doing that would be brilliant. It's kind of like um, how Smash missed the boat to be able to like have a functioning Broadway show the the year yeah. that the season one came out and bombshell would have been on Broadway and just tie those in. That would have been absolutely brilliant. You could get anyone you wanted to star in it and they would have raked yep. in money hand over fist and they just dropped the ball. And now every five years we get a rumor that it's finally happening. Like didn't before pandemic, didn't they say it was finally going to happen? Well, and it's yeah. Like, and then didn't they do, why? A <laughs> didn't they do like a bombshell concert or something? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I never, I missed the boat on smash. I did. I've heard some of the music. It seems like fun. I wish that I'd been a part of that movement and I just kind of sat on it and now it's too late. Yeah. Well, I mean, smash came out the year that I was in chemo. So like I was literally at home, like mm. dying watching Ivy. Let me, let me be your star. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, literally. And then I, I never got into season two, but I have, I have the, music on my phone and I work out to it all the time and like it's such it's so good but yeah yeah, yeah. I mean derail I love again. Megan <laughs> we did we derail again I know I'm, uh, I'm so, here to derail you that's my job <laughs> oh wow just like every other man in my life oh <laughs> so let's get into a little bit of uh oogie boogie lore so I did I tried to do some research on actually what a boogeyman is and it's just a very like vague definition of kind of a, a an entity that parents use to scare their children into behaving, right? Uh, there are references all the way back to like hundreds and hundreds of years ago in every single culture. It's just, um, you know, sometimes they are like demons or sometimes they are ghosts. But I did find, and I thought this was very interesting, there's always been like, an, like a bug association with them. Right. Like some of some depictions of them are very insect like, which makes me think that these filmmakers did their research, because, as we all know, Oogie Boogie is a burlap sack filled with a hive mind of varying insects. Yeah. Well, I mean, for twenty four million dollars, you better do your research. Absolutely true. Right. Uh, <laughs> if they didn't, so, I'd be like, what did you do with that money? <laughs> Boogeyman, if you break it down, bogey. Uh, is uh, like was once a term for the devil, but also related to the word bug. So devil bug man is basically kind of like when you break down boogeyman, where it comes from and what it means. I was afraid of the boogeyman when I was a kid. He was under the bed for me. I used to turn off my bedroom light and run and leap into bed so that nothing could grab me from under my bed <laughs> as I was crawling into it into the dark. Ours was under the stairs. We I lived in a split level house as a kid. And under the the first set of stairs that came down when you came this way and like went to the left, there was a closet that was under there that sloped down with the stairs. And my dad would always be like, oh, that's where the boogeyman lives. So, you know. Oh, my God. 
and That's it was so like scary. Oh. so i was afraid to go down in the basement <laughs> until i was like 10 god that's terrifying i my grandma had stairs we didn't have stairs in my house but my grandma did she lived in in san francisco and so we went for christmas and she had like this cupboard over the stairs like these giant doors and my uncle told us that's where he keeps the bodies and i just wouldn't go upstairs anymore (laughs) well to a kid like uh because you don't know you don't know what like sarcasm and wit are when you're a kid no, definitely not. And I, I just also wasn't familiar with a staircase in an old house. You know, right. I grew up in Phoenix. Nobody in Arizona has a staircase. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That that had to be traumatizing. It was. It was. So Oogie himself uh, doesn't have a lot of screen time. He actually technically doesn't appear until the 40 minute mark, which is basically the exact middle of the movie yeah now in the opening number this is halloween we get his shadow across the moon and he sings i am the shadow on the moon at night filling your dreams to the brim with fright i am the shadow on the moon at night filling your dreams to the brim with fright it is theorized that his shadow is its own character like its own sentient being Mm-hmm. because you see it kind of dance around later on on its own. I don't know if it's intentional or not, but it is a theory because Oogie is confined to was, his lair. Maybe he was just like astral projecting. Very Shirley MacLaine. <laughs> 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 well, and all right, if we're going to get into weird, stupid Disney fan theories, which I'm obsessed with, it is Halloween night. So maybe he's allowed to leave his lair only on Halloween night. Oh, maybe. Okay, yeah. I mean, I I guess I never really thought too much about the whole shadow on the moon thing, but yeah, that that makes total sense. I yeah. like I like that theory. Uh, cuz he lives his lair is very much like a like a casino mixed with a fun house and it's under Lock, Shock and Barrel's treehouse. So they are his henchmen. What are you doing here? Jack sent for us. Specifically by name. Lock, Shock, Barrel. Jack, Jack. It's Boogie's Boys! Ah, Halloween's finest trick-or-treaters. Locke, the devil, voiced by Paul Rubens, uh, Pee Wee Herman himself. Uh, Shock, who is a witch, voiced by Catherine O'Hara. So she also voiced Sally. She also voices Shock. I always thought that Shock looked like Margaret Hamilton. I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too! Not just because she's a green witch, but like, no, no, no. Notice her facial features. Like, no, notice her really. eyes. Yeah. I think it's very deliberate. I, th- I th- it's, uh, It has to be deliberate. It, it's just like, I think there's probably more homages in this film that are probably Easter egged in than maybe we're aware of. And then Beryl, who's a little skeleton boy, was voiced by Danny Elfman. So Danny Elfman obviously wrote the music. He was the singing voice of Jack Skellington. And he voiced Beryl as well. Danny wanted to play the speaking voice of Jack. He really fell in love with the character, but he just wasn't delivering. So they got Chris Sarandon instead. I love Danny Elfman. His body of work is so astounding. And just he he really like, I don't want to say this because I, I'm not terribly well versed in this. But to me, he's like the quintessential like sweeping film soundtrack. Like he's kind of like the last of that of that group that really writes those big, sweeping, bombastic, like gorgeous, like all strings and huge orchestra soundtracks to me. I think that's a great point. A lot of movies these days don't have iconic scores. No. Like we think of the, the famous James Horner scores or the Danny Elfman scores. We don't have composers like that anymore. Like, look at a Marvel movie. There's nothing iconic about that. It's no, just it's like... regurgitated, like, hearkening back to what was before. Or it's like pop music, which there's nothing wrong with. I'm a fan. But, like... Danny Elfman to me is kind of like the last of the Mohicans in that sense where it's like well and and completely original and unique too because he utilizes you know like beautiful choral work and uh like you said sweeping strings he's he's recognizable yeah and and really it was it was to the point back in the day not so much now but like I'd go to a movie and I would notice the score and be and just know that it was Danny Elfman before I even like looked or knew it was just like yeah this is Danny Elfman and obviously a great songwriter too he was in the band Oingo Boingo uh in the 80s and now has his own career uh is he is he an Oscar winner Danny Elfman did he ever win an Oscar for score let me look right now um 
Perhaps. I feel like he would have had to, right? Um. Oh, he's four four nominations, zero wins. Oh, sad. Yeah. He kind of looks like he kind Maybe. of looks like Elton John. Yes. He, totally he's giving me, agreed. He's giving me this like lesbian Elton John look. Yeah, that's exactly how to put it. Maybe he will win an Oscar. He he supervised the score for Wednesday. He like wrote the main theme and then handed it over to other people to kind of like plug it in throughout the series and and rework it. Yeah. Well, and actually, uh, so now, now, you know, now that since we were talking about Wednesday, I mean, like even when that first started, I think I I think I have an association with and and rightfully so, but I have an association with Danny Elfman and Tim Burton, and I kind of think of them as like quintessential to each other because they've worked together so much. Yeah. And so, like, without even knowing that he had done the score for Wednesday, it just felt familiar and homey to me. So, like, now you telling yeah. me that, I'm like, oh, of course, yes, this makes sense. So obviously, uh, and so he wrote Oogie Boogie's song. Uh, for this movie and it's it's a really good song it might be my favorite song in the film it is well and I, and I was gonna say back to what you were talking about how uh, Oogie Boogie doesn't appear until like 40 minutes in that's like the princess track that's the dream role that's the role I want to have like oh, you don't yeah. you don't come on until halfway through you sing your goddamn ass off you are iconic and then you leave <laughs> yep it's why it's one of the reasons I want to play King George and Hamilton you'll be back <laughs> right, like just give me all of those roles where I can just come in and be like, hmm, and then leave. <laughs> Ursula in The Little Mermaid. Right, I want to be on stage it. twice and I want everyone to leave talking about me. <laughs> That's what I do. It's what I live for. Well, but also like now now that I'm, cause I've, I'm now like on Danny Elfman's Wikipedia page, like he has so many BMI awards, but he only has one Grammy. Sputnik. He won a Grammy for Best Instrumental Composition for Sputnik. Oh, that God. is not what I expected. You know what? This was less interesting. What a letdown. <laughs> <laughs> Does he work on the music for The White Lotus? Is that what I'm seeing? That wouldn't surprise me at all. <laughs> that weird turkey, like... <laughs> We're moving on. This isn't the Danny Elfman podcast. <laughs> so much buildup. All right. This has become a Danny Elfman stand podcast. <laughs> So, just for uh, Danny. Back to Oogie Boogie. Uh, the he makes some appearances in some follow-up video games. So there's never been an official sequel to Nightmare Before Christmas. There are a couple comic books. There are a couple video games. The Game Boy Pro game, The Pumpkin King, gives you Oogie Boogie's complete backstory, and it's kind of interesting. Up to like a year before the events of the film. Uh, Jack was the Pumpkin King and Oogie was like, hey, I want to be in charge. I want to run, you know, Halloween Town. And so he decides he's going to, like, run a coup operation on Jack Skellington and turn Halloween into Crawloween and make it, like, the bug holiday because he's the king of bugs. Mm -hmm. So in this video game, he uh, attempts to take over. He sets his insects all over Halloween Town, and then you play as Jack Skellington fighting these bugs and trying to get to Oogie Boogie. When you defeat him, Jack Skellington then banishes him to his lair. Basically, according to that canon, Oogie Boogie is imprisoned in that lair for trying to overthrow Halloween Town and take over uh, Jack Skellington's role. Here's my thing about Oogie Boogie. Tim Burton does not consider him a villain. And while I don't necessarily agree with that because he tries to eat Santa Claus, Jack Skellington was the first person to try to kidnap Santa Claus. Right. Like, Jack Skellington, this movie is really about cultural appropriation <laughs> well kind of but i think so i i actually i actually have a lot to say about this <laughs> say it say it say it so like i was i was really kind of picking this apart last night thinking about the villain component of nightmare before christmas and really it's that no one is a good person except for sally yeah oh yeah and everyone else is kind of terrible but and like, of course, no one's listening to her because she's a woman. Right. And so, like, you have these, like, bullheaded men who are completely ridiculous trying to figure their shit out. And she's kind of getting pushed off to the side. But, however, uh, I had mentioned that at, with work, we just did this retreat. We framed this in that everyone, specifically Jack, we framed this 
in that Jack, the film is really about trying to find who you really are and realizing that the answer was right in front of you the entire time. And that's not necessarily specific to Jack. I mean, like all of us, all of us are just going through life trying to figure out who we really are. And the answer is probably right in front of us. And we Mm -hmm. go on these epic journeys to go and find and figure out who we are and try to take on other roles of people that we run into. And we kind of like become a little bit a part of them only to realize that like the way that we were was fine. And like, I'm okay being that. And I had never heard nightmare before Christmas frame that way. And I was like, Oh my God, you're right. And that's probably why teenagers, myself as a teenager resonated with this so much. Cause like it's, it's kind of veiled in this romance, but it's also this, this guy who has everything who doesn't think he has enough goes off to try and find more and in doing so learns so many lessons about why that's not necessary and how everything he had was right there and he could have just been happy with that but instead he had to go screw things up and learn lessons the hard way to loop back around to realize like hey i'm actually great and this is cool I mean, I love that. It's absolutely true. I also think that oftentimes you have to go through that to realize what you have. Like like Dorothy getting home from Oz and being like, I think I'm good. Like, yeah. <laughs> and I'm not going to leave here ever, ever again. And, oh, Annie M, there's no place like home. Which I never understood why she would leave Technicolor Oz to go live in a sepia-toned tornado land in the Bible Belt. Right. <laughs> Another story. Never mind. Anyway. Um, but like, it's, it, it really is. I mean, yes, you do have to go on these journeys to learn this about yourself. But I find it so funny that a lot of us, and I'm sort of on quasi on this journey now, that everything that you want is, or everything that you need is right, is already there. And so use that to get where you want to go instead of trying to take on, I think it's also comparing yourself to other people and looking at other people and what they have and being like, oh my God, if only I could have that, I'd be fulfilled. When really like everything you already have is everything you need to get where you want to go. Except for Oogie Boogie. I take that. Not like that. Oogie Boogie. Oogie Boogie. Oogie Boogie is a slighted old queen that's just like, I'm coming for you, bitch. Oh God. <laughs> He sets booby traps all over his lair. He he's interesting. So like he's obsessed with gambling. He has fun gambling. He has no talent for gambling. He rolls snake eyes three times in this movie. Like he is an unlucky motherfucker. He cheats in order to win. Cause I'm a gambling boogeyman, although I don't play fair. It's much more fun, I must confess, when lives on the line. Not mine, of course, but yours, oh boy. Now let it be just fine. He has a very domineering personality. He needs to be in charge. There's a verse cut out of his song. It's on the soundtrack, but not in the film, about eating Santa Claus. Like, it's implied in the movie, but there's a whole verse about uh, what he's going to do to prepare Santa Claus in his snake and spider stew. Well, if I'm feeling antsy, then I've nothing much to do. I might just cook a special batch of snake and spider stew. And don't you know the one thing that would make it work so nice? A roly poly Santa Claus, dad, a little spy. Which, uh, I wish they'd kept it in. I just love his sequence. I think it's so visually cool with all the black light. It would have been cool just to get a little bit more of that yeah. in the movie. I mean, it's iconic. He His whole scene, front to back, is iconic. Everything about him is magnetizing and i think it kind of you know it kind of i i find the booby trap thing interesting because he in the end becomes unraveled and then you see what he really is which is just this big pile of bugs and he keeps this very thin veil over who he really is and Mm -hmm. And sets all these booby traps to keep people away from him. And when people are in his space, he um, does everything he possibly can with like flash and trash and show and distraction 
to keep their focus off of him so that he can kind of like prance around and do all the little things that he needs to do to win that match. Oh my God, I do relate to Oogie Boogie. (laughs) (laughs) But it's, but I mean, that can also be harkened back to certain political figures where they are, they're, they're, they don't have much to offer, but they do all of the like distraction things to make it look like they're doing stuff. You know, and I think that's just a human construct that we all do, and it stems from insecurity, which is another reason why I think Oogie Boogie is a queer character because it, it harkens to that whole like being in the closet and hiding who you are and trying to do things to make people not see who you are, good or bad, and like just you know, like putting on a show to to distract from the fact that like maybe the people looking at you won't like what you have to offer or won't like who you are. I think that's a great theory. I really dig this. I mean, I think I've always suspect like seen a bit of queerness in him, but I love exploring it. Um, he, uh, you know, when you think about it, uh, if we're talking about all the show that he puts on and everything, by the end of all of his bugs unraveling, he, he's really just one insect, one tiny little insect. Like he doesn't have a lot of power. He just like makes people believe that he does. He's in the scale of the world of the nightmare before Christmas. He is 10 feet tall compared to the rest of his surroundings. Like I'm looking, my ceilings are about 10 feet tall. He is fucking huge, you know? And yet down inside, deep, deep, deep inside, by the time all of his bugs have fallen away, he's just one little worm crawling around saying, my bugs, my bugs, <laughs> that Santa Claus steps on. Santa fucking kills him. I know, BTW. right? <laughs> I well, love yeah. Santa's sassy, like, bumpy sleigh ride jack as he snatches <laughs> his hat back. Have you, I noticed last night, I never noticed this before, Santa's underwear is covered in mistletoe. Yeah. Kiss my ass. I cannot believe it. Oh my God. No, I think, I think, listen, this is how big of a hot topic nerd I was back to that. Like, I think they sold mistletoe boxer shorts. I would wear them. I would definitely wear them. That's um, cute. But like, I think that's also kind of a really interesting metaphor. How like you're, you just feel like this tiny little worm. And so you mm-hmm. build yourself up to this big giant thing Yep. Whether that be scary or entertaining or distracting or or whatever that that action is to make people feel the way you want them to feel about you. Yeah. And so for me, like Oogie Boogie has always been a metaphor for coming out or for uh, being in the closet and, and kind of like that duality of who you are because – and it could go either way. Like when you're not out or when you're, you feel a particular way about yourself, you either retreat and you become that tiny little one worm or you go the absolute, absolute opposite direction. You become this big, larger than life entity that people are mm-hmm. either are entertained by or are afraid of. And that is, that is like protective layers. That is like a defense mechanism. And I have always viewed uh, Oogie Boogie's lair as like a big defense mechanism. That's why it's booby trapped. It's why like there's so like he's in control. He's literally pulling the levers and doing the things to prevent you from seeing who he is on the inside. Edward, this is really good stuff. You're so smart. (laughs) (laughs) I was just a worm as a child. (laughs) Oh, and now you're a 10 foot tall bug filled burlap burlap Don't unravel me, please. <laughs> oh, you know, interestingly enough, the original ending was going to reveal Dr. Dr. Finkelstein inside of the burlap sack. So the, <gasps> I know what a reveal. I didn't know uh, this. I don't love that ending. I, I think I prefer the ending that we got for no, sure. No, I a hundred percent. Because if it was, if it were Dr. Finkelstein, then all of this shit that I'm spewing makes no sense. <laughs> no sense at all. No, he would have been, he would have been doing it to get back at uh, Sally and, and Jack for stealing Sally away from him. I like Dr. Finkelstein as like a curmudgeon, you yeah. know, voiced by the very talented William Hickey. Yeah. I, I prefer the bug filled burlap sack who is easily unraveled. Me too. (laughs) No, but also like he is, he's the princess track, you know, like, and, and what, what I like about those princess tracks a lot of times, and I think this is maybe specific to 
oogie boogie and I would have to take a little bit more time to think about this for other ones, but they're not, they're usually not terribly well written in the sense that you don't get a lot of backstory for them. So you can let your, your brain go anywhere you want with them. Which right. Kind of why, like in thinking about oogie boogie last night, I was like, well, there's no real context, I guess, of like whether any of this is true or not. It's just how you interpret it and what your point of view of it is. Well, and I have to wonder if that's by design for this character because the definition of the boogeyman is so vague throughout yeah. history. Well, I mean, by design, or maybe that's just all they wanted to do with it because they couldn't find any other solid, you know, lore that pointed to yeah. the movie. Well, they keep the movie short. It's only 80 minutes long. I mean, it's, it it's takes perfect. a long time to animate something like this. Right. It's exactly as long as it needs to be, except maybe adding that one more verse from Oogie Boogie's song, which would have <laughs> been cool. Uh, the soundtrack also has like a, an epilogue poem where like, Jack and Sally had little skeleton babies and Santa Claus and Jack are still friends, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, Oogie, Oogie did not appear in Tim Burton's original poem that inspired the movie. So Oogie is is originally just, just for the movie. And then he makes one more video game appearance. Well, two more. He's in Kingdom Hearts, basically a straightforward representation of himself. But then there's a video game called Oogie's Revenge. And it's like a full-on video game I think it was for PlayStation based on the movie. It's like a sequel to the movie. Oogie finds the doors to the different holidays, right? The seven doors. And he steals them and hides them from Jack. And so Jack's trying to save everybody. He's keeping all of the holiday figures prisoners. So like, what is it? Independence Day, St. Patrick's Day, Easter, Christmas, Halloween. I think there's one more. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's keeping them all prisoner and Jack has to run around Halloween town and fight bad guys and try to save them all. And in that game, Oogie's shadow is a separate entity from Oogie and you have to battle the shadow and you have to battle Oogie. I wish I'd known about this video game back when I was a big video game nerd because it sounds like a lot of fun. I mean, it's, it does sound like a lot of fun. I was never a video game person, so this would not have been... We had like computer game things, but it was never like a video game console like Nintendo. Really? Oh, see, I miss. I I was a big Kingdom Hearts fan, like massive. I don't have a PlayStation right now, so I don't have access to the. I think there's, I think there's one game that I haven't played in the series, but it was really cool running around Halloween Town. Sora has his Halloween Town costume with like his little jack o' lantern on his head, and he looks really cool. And it's a cool representation of Oogie as well. Well, I feel as though we've done a pretty damn good job of talking about Mr. Oogie Boogie, the boogeyman. Do you have any final the thoughts boogeyman. on the character? I feel like you've really like defined him. <laughs> <laughs> I like to do this with a lot of roles that I want to play or I hadn't or have played and I turn them into queer characters on purpose because I feel like there's a lot of underrepresentation before a certain time period. Um, mm-hmm. I mean there still is now, but that's another story. Never mind anyway. And um it's it's just like I think it's my want to be to see people in the queer space that are not stereotypical to what we normally get. I'm writing a piece now called Julian, which is the the backstory of Julian Marsh from 42nd Street. Cause he's he's one of those characters that like isn't very well written. There's not a whole lot of context there. Like and you kind of get to play with him and do whatever you want. You know, similar to Oogie Boogie, where there's not a whole lot of context there and you kind of get to play with it and do what you want. So the idea of him being this queer icon in this town you know, like, I mean, he's like two notches away from being a drag queen, the way that he moves around and sings. Oh, yeah. And, and like, you know, the whole, <laughs> like, you're joking me. You gotta be. You're joking. You're joking. I can't believe my eyes. You're joking me. You gotta be. This can't be the right guy. Like, it, like who talks like that? <laughs> you know, and it's just like, <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. I've always loved Oogie Boogie. I don't think I've ever realized... I I know that I've looked at him as a villain, but I don't really ever think that I considered him to be a villain. I think that he's more kind of like the tragic figure. Like, Who likes to eat Santa Claus? Who wants to eat Santa Claus? Well, but I mean, like, but like, let's let's explore that. Why does he want to eat Santa Claus? Because Santa Claus represents joy and represents like generosity and and love and gift giving and coming together and family time. And Oogie's, for whatever reason, whether it was for his own on his own accord or the people of the town wanted it, he's been banished. He's hiding 
under his henchmen's homes. You know, like those are his caregivers. Those they probably like bring him food and like make sure he's good and they keep him to validate themselves. But if Oogie Boogie was banished by the town, that means he's in exile. If he mm-hmm. left on his own accord, that means something happened that made him want to leave. Yeah. And so like I view him as being a lonely, sad person which is why i think the in the closet metaphor works so well because when you're in the closet you're like you're not really your whole person and again it's either you turn into the tiny little worm or you build yourself up into this scary monster to protect yourself and that's kind of what i view him as doing he's protecting himself and if only someone would come along and give him a hug and tell him it's okay. Oh. <laughs> Is that just because you want someone to give you a hug and tell you it's okay? Sometimes, yeah. A lot of times. Sometimes. <laughs> okay, every we, day, yeah. I think we all I think we all need that. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. So maybe I'm gonna go watch this now under this lens and like really kind of dig deeper into into Oogie being a tragic figure cuz I do believe that and I think I don't know if I've ever articulated articulated it that way but he is I mean I don't think he's a villain at all if anything Jack is the villain I mean again cultural appropriation trying to steal Christmas away he's the one who sends the henchmen to kidnap Santa Claus first he is maybe all right all right all right all right let me take you somewhere if Jack is a col- if Jack is a colonizer, he's white because he's a skeleton, and he's sending henchmen to go do his bidding, but under the guise that he thinks he's doing good, right? He's got like the white man complex of like I am doing you know the right thing, I'm doing what's best. Whereas Oogie Boogie, voiced by a black man, gets villainized for the same thing. Am I reaching here? No, no, I, I don't. But my, I guess my question is like, are we talking about how he's villainized for doing the same thing in the video game world or are we talking strictly the film? No, just the movie. Just the movie. Okay. I mean, I think this goes back, if we're going to stick to my theory about Oogie, I think that him eating Santa Claus is just kind of like an opportunistic moment to really kind of be like, fuck you, Jack. Because, like, Jack is the one who went and kidnapped Santa Claus. And so for Jack to make right, he has to return Santa Claus. But if he can't Mm -hmm. do that, the target's on Jack. And Oogie can just be like, well, he was trespassing. Ain't no one going to colonize my lair. (laughs) These games that these characters play, it's such a more sinister film than we ever imagined. (laughs) I know. I mean, we could, there's probably a lot we could do with this. But also, I I wonder, like, looking back at um, any of, like, the casino games that there are, if there's anything there that we could be like, is that something? You know, and like, mm. let's create conspiracy theories around Nightmare Before Christmas. Like, <laughs> he's he's got a big roulette wheel as the floor. There's slot machines. I don't. Um, are there any playing cards? I don't remember any playing cards because those. You know, interesting. All right, all right, all right. Hear me out. Those would require skill and cunning, whereas a roulette wheel, dice, or die, and um, slot machines are purely coincident like coincident like totally like, luck, luck right there's well, no he, skill in that. rolling a, i think there's something there that I, they did not include any gambling paraphernalia that would require any sort of skill yeah i love it i do too we could we could have this conversation forever because that that kind of rolls into again like the political forum and like these people don't have any skill they're just playing they're playing a game and like the big- well, we could go on and on about it, but I think we have done a great job of covering Oogie Boogie. <laughs> if I'm perfectly honest with you, <laughs> no, I think we really have. I, but now this is going to have this is going to be my spiral for the rest of the day as I continue to clean and, and do my meal prep for the week. <laughs> You're like, welcome. I'm going to message you tomorrow and be like, "So I have this whole profile of Oogie Boogie laid out. <laughs> what do you think?" <laughs> All right, everybody, stay tuned next Christmas when we revisit after Edward has <laughs> tortured himself for an entire year about. Boogie Boogie's origin and what he represents. We'll revisit it next year. Like, where was he uh, born? Where does he live? Well, who is his, who, what was his parents like? What happened to them? Where are they? <laughs> the world may never know. Edward, I'm so grateful that you took the time to appear on this podcast. Oh, my God. You did a great job. I'm very happy for you. Thank you. This happy was fun. Your, yeah. I want to do this more um, often. You're welcome to come back anytime. But maybe, I know you hate scary movies, but maybe we'll pick a scary movie for you to talk about and you can face your fears. 
Hmm. Do we need to do that live? <laughs> <laughs> we'll do like a, a audio commentary track while we're watching the ring and just hear you screaming oh God, and get really upset not. the entire time. You better have like a, a <laughs> shit bucket ready. <laughs> you know what? Never mind. We're good. We don't we're have good. to do this. It doesn't need to happen. <laughs> Edward, where where can our where can my listeners stalk you? Um, you can find me on TikTok and Instagram at Edward Miskey. Excellent. And your book, Cancer, Musical Theater, and Other Chronic illnesses is available literally everywhere literally everywhere everywhere you buy books and the audiobook is coming out in december i'm literally getting off of here and going back into my recording booth to do the rest of it so cool that's exciting good for you audiobooks are hard <laughs> audiobooks are hard i can imagine uh, i have a lot of friends who do uh voice work and audiobook work and it seems tedious it seems real tedious it's just it makes me question my uh reading capabilities <laughs> yeah i can i can get that for sure yeah sometimes like, i'll do intro like a little intro paragraph before a podcast and like one paragraph will take me 10 minutes to record yeah. and it's like can i read what is wrong with right. me? <laughs> yeah yeah uh well listeners as you probably know you can stalk me on instagram ricky the host at rick the letter r treat uh the podcast is available on instagram at rick or treat pod i've deleted twitter on both accounts and you can follow me on letterboxd at rick or treat and that's the show that we have listen if everyone could take one quick moment and go to apple podcasts and write a cute little review five stars five stars only it would be very much appreciated and i'll read it online i'll i'll read it on the pod i'll do like um like a dramatic reading or something uh we'll see i don't know i just need some more reviews so get your asses over there thank you all very much edward thank you again thank you uh next week join us as i have the boys from the scared gay podcast as we talk about michael doherty's christmas horror classic krampus we'll see y'all later spookies (laughs) thanks for coming rick-or-treating It'd be a real scream if you'd take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever platform you're listening on. The show's spooky intro and outro music is a cover of Camille Saint-Saëns' Danse Macabre, with kick-ass metal orchestrations composed and performed by Lestat von Monlicht. Links to the artist's music can be found in the episode's description. Check him out, he's frighteningly talented. Rick or Treat Horrorcast is independently produced by me, Ricky J. Duarte, of Rick or Treat Productions. If you like what you heard, tell a fiend. I mean, friend. If you didn't, well... They're coming to get you, listener.